Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for today's message is taken from our gospel reading from Matthew 11 with an emphasis on these words. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This is our text, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Just over 81 years ago, as of this week, on December 7, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service launched a surprise attack on the U.S. naval base stationed on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. This attack, which lasted only 90 minutes, would leave 18 ships sunken or run aground, 188 aircraft destroyed, and 2,335 non-combatant U.S. soldiers, along with 68 civilians, dead before its conclusion. In the aftermath of this attack, a joint session of Congress would be called to formally declare war on Japan, bringing the United States firmly into the thick of World War II. In his speech following the attack, President Roosevelt famously referred to the attack as a day which would live in infamy. And I believe he was right in that assessment. For even 81 years later, bringing up the mere mention of the name Pearl Harbor immediately conjures the image of that dreadful attack even among those of us who were not even born when it took place. Events like Pearl Harbor tend to leave people reeling with many questions. Stop me if you've heard these before. Why did this happen? Who is responsible? What could have been done to prevent this? And most pointedly, for we in the Christian church, why would God allow something like this to happen? Certainly those civilians and those soldiers, those men and women who were merely doing their duty to serve their neighbor, did not deserve what happened to them. So we ask, why are bad things allowed to happen to good people? Friends, I'm curious if this last question might have been on the minds of the disciples of John the Baptist in our gospel reading for today. As they visited their teacher in prison and then as they carried his message to Jesus. When our text for today begins, we see John in the middle of a very bad day. <clears throat> Matthew 11 begins by telling us that John has been in prison, but we wouldn't actually get the full details until three chapters later in Matthew 14. Here we read, For Herod had seized John and bound him up and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put John to death, he feared the people, because they all held him to be a prophet. I want you all to let that image sink in just a little bit for you this morning. Remember in our readings last week, when we were introduced to John, how he was riding high and preparing the way? How he called hearts to repentance, rebuking sin, and making the path straight for Israel's coming Messiah? Well, now, in Matthew 11, the Messiah is here. 
Jesus walked the earth, as we have read, preaching, teaching, healing, driving out demons, performing miracles, opening the scriptures to his disciples, and gathering in his lost sheep. And where was John the Baptist in the middle of all of this? Well, as we read in Matthew 11, he was rotting away in a prison cell. And for what? Well, for getting involved and entangled in a royal adulterous scandal. Something so far beneath his station that it's a wonder he was even involved in it at all. Herod, a notorious lecher, has absconded with his brother Philip's wife, and word had it that he now had his eyes fixed on his niece-slash-daughter-in-law. It seemed like John's rebuke of Herod would have been a no-brainer, right? Now, Herod, try to follow me here. Adultery is bad. You ought not to be doing what you're doing. Your behavior is not becoming of someone in a leadership position among God's people. It's not lawful for you to entice your sister-in-law away from her husband and into your bed. Stop being gross. That last part was a Pastor Beck paraphrase, if you couldn't tell. But John did nothing more than to do his duty as a prophet. And he did so faithfully. He spoke truth to power. In fact, he was so faithful that Jesus would later say of him in our reading, Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. So what's the deal? Why is John, by all accounts a good man, allowed to languish in prison while King Herod, a bad king, a bad brother, a bad Jew, sits comfortably in his lavish palace? By John's own account, something doesn't seem to be adding up here. Remember again last week from Pastor Edwards' sermon, when we read in, in Matthew's gospel, John said, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but it seems to me like this would have been a great time to start burning the chaff. Certainly, John and his disciples must have had this prophecy in mind when they came to Jesus. They all asked him, are you really the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? This is just another way of asking those pointed questions that we just talked about. Why, Jesus? Is this being allowed to happen? We were promised a mighty deliverer, someone who would come with a strong arm to execute justice for the faithful. And now here you are, the one who John forecasted. So why the delay? Get threshing, Jesus. Friends, wouldn't that be great if every time uncertainty or trial or persecution came your way, you had an express line to God to bid him start barking thunder and lightning on your behalf? Well, certainly we, the good guys, would always execute this privilege responsibly, right? 
Instant karma for all the bad guys, or at least the ones who we deem to be bad, our own bad deeds notwithstanding, of course. Do you see where I'm going with this? That's not how it worked for John. And thanks be to God, that's not how it works for us either. Jesus did not come to smite sinners. He came to save them. Yes, he is every inch that mighty Messiah that John thought he was. But he does not show his strength in a way that you or I would, or for that matter, in a way that we would expect. When Jesus heard John's pointed question, what did he say? He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You heard that last part right. Blessed are you, John, even in prison. For Jesus' actions validate your faith. With his mighty arm, he brings good news. He brings healing. He brings deliverance. But not just for you, for all people all suffering sinners seeking salvation. This same Jesus who came to preach and teach and heal in Israel would now go to the cross to bleed and die for the sake of the whole world, securing for fallen man an eternal deliverance and free recompense for his sins. But this, to us, doesn't sound like strength, does it? When we picture the mighty Messiah... Rarely, the first image that comes to our mind would be a suffering servant hanging to die on a tree. We would all probably much rather have had Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a white horse, a crown on his head, and a sword in his hand to save us. Yet the mystery of his messianic task is what he says through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus, the mighty Son of the Everlasting Father, came to shed His blood on the cross so that you and me and John and all who are held captive in the wages of sin might have a full and lasting freedom. Not merely freedom from bad kings, not merely freedom from bad days, bad luck, bad health, bad economy, but freedom from all those trespasses which would separate us from the Lord our God in death. In giving up his life for you, Jesus has given you life in him. Yes, John would die at the command of wicked Herod. But make no mistake, this was not the end of his story. For St. John the baptizer, he awaits the resurrection of the flesh in blessed rest. He, like us, looks forward to that day when death itself will be undone, giving way to life eternal. I tell you, though, this is not only the case for John. It's also our case. For the same Jesus who came to gave, give the blind their sight and cause the lame to walk, the same Jesus who cleansed lepers and restored hearing to the deaf and raised the dead and preached good news to the poor, he has also come to loose the chains of sin and death from you. He has come to bring you safely into his kingdom. 
And so what is true for John must be true for you. That blessed are you, you saints of the Lord, for you have been given Christ, the Messiah. Blessed are you. 